All right, let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious God, Father, we are uh, called to be your children. You have given us your spirit. And as we are in this world of trial and tribulation, we ask that you would guide us to model your faith and your, the, the faith of your son who entrusted himself to your will. We ask that you would give us courage to endure the temptations and difficulties of this temporal world of this age so that everything we say and do may be edifying and give glory to your holy name. Keep us strong and faithful even unto death. In the name of Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Okay, so today is um, we're, we're gonna do, I don't know what we're gonna all get to, but uh, Possibly, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll continue with um, the bit on uh, exorcism. I know I started last week to talk about demons and demonization and uh, exorcisms. And we read one, we read one of the passages or uh, pericope. I don't know if you guys know that word, pericope. It, it just means a, a selection from, from the Bible, a pericope. So if I use that word. Um, so we read one pericope or one passage last time about an, of an exorcism in the book of Acts. And as far as I recall, there's only, there, there are two exorcism episodes in the book of Acts. There are numerous places where in general it is stated that unclean spirits were being cast out. Um, frequently this went along with preaching and healing. I mean, so you do see the apostles there's a number of places where it'll say they're doing signs and wonders and casting out evil spirits or something. So there's a number of references like that in the book of Acts. But uh, uh, unless I'm mistaken, I only uh, can recall there being two more detailed episodes of exorcism. And one of them was uh, read and discussed a little last week with um, the seven sons of Sceva, the seven uh, Jewish uh, sons of the high priest who were not Christians, who were trying to cast out a demon, seven of them, uh, out of one man, and, uh, and it didn't work. And, uh, and then Paul, uh, well, Paul later comes along. But they say, you know, you know, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, we adjure you to be gone. And the demon or demons say, uh, well, we know Jesus and we've heard of Paul, but we don't know who you are. So, uh, so they beat them up and the, the man, the demoniac, beat up the seven sons of Sceva. They were wounded and stripped naked and they fled away. So, I mean, it's not funny. <laughs> it's not a funny story, but, um, but it is a little bit funny. Now, the, the, the story today that we will get to in just a few moments is, um, let me see if I can... Uh, uh, quickly locate the reference to that. Yeah, so the um, if you want to turn there, uh, I've got some preparatory material before we get there, but if you want to turn to have it, it'll be Acts 16. Uh, I suggest putting a bookmark there because we may flip around. But Acts 16, now this is uh, um, uh, another story of, um, of, of Paul. Okay, so we're mostly doing Paul these days. And, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll summarize it and, and we'll read it and discuss it in, in a little bit. I just want to start with just a short uh, recap of a few of the points I wanted to make last week, uh, not long, but then uh, move into some new, new ideas and then before we actually get to the story. And then, if we do that all successfully, my next topic with you is going to be persecution slash martyrdom, okay? Persecution slash martyrdom. And uh, if, if we don't do it this week, we'll for sure do it next week, okay? There's a major theme uh, in, uh, in, well, it's a theme in the Gospels, but it's certainly a major theme in the book of Acts, or a significant theme, and in the epistles of Paul. Well, in the book of Revelation. So, I mean, act, uh, the book of the, the New Testament, and not just the New Testament, <laughs> the prophets in the Old Testament, many of whom were uh, 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 slain, killed, uh, beheaded, beaten to death, stoned, uh, sawn in half. You know, so, I mean, the prophets in the Old Testament also were, many of them, martyrs. Um, okay, 
I mean, Jesus even says that, right? Jesus says, oh, Israel, you who killed all the prophets that were sent to you. And then they kill him. So, uh, it, it, now, when I started last week and to talk about demons and the devil and demonization and demoniacs and being possessed, and I, uh, I, I, I read to you that brief quote from C.S. Lewis's introduction to his book, um, The Screwtape Letters. And if you like C.S. Lewis, and you should, <laughs> um, if you like C.S. Lewis, uh, screw tape. Some of his books are more uh, complicated and difficult and philosophical than others, and some of them are written more for popular consumption. And uh, but screw tape letters is kind of like that. It's uh, it's fiction, and uh, if you don't know it, screw tape is a um, uh, is a senior demon, and he's writing to a junior demon, like his nephew, and they're writing letters. Okay. And the senior demon is giving uh, tips and advice to the younger, immature novice on how to tempt, how to lead a particular. So this novice is assigned to a particular Christian. And uh, so why, it's an why, why read this? This is not just um, you know, for titillation. It's not like a horror movie, which is just trying to shock or anything. It gives lots of insights into um, uh, the, the nature of, of temptation and the Christian life. There's a lot of, a lot of wisdom in C.S. Lewis and the way he does this. There's a lot of wisdom in, uh, for us in living the Christian life knowing that we are susceptible to temptation and, and to the power of the devil. And so he gives lots of, I, I think, actually really practical things. There's a lot of really practical things about how to pray and how to resist the devil and things like that. So, um, so I do commend the book to you. I know many people in here are readers and uh, like to read theology. So that's something. If you haven't read it, it is a classic. It's uh, quite good. Now in the preface to it, he writes, C.S. Lewis writes, and I, it's just a sentence or two. There are, he says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delights. So, you know, magician here doesn't mean a stage magi magician who's doing sleight of hand or card tricks. Uh, magician here in the sense of a sorcerer, an occultist is uh, <clears throat> the sense of that, but um, the, the one who disbelieves their existence, he calls a materialist. And uh, of course, there are many people today who are that. Materialist, not in the sense uh, that we might often use it, n not in the sense of someone who just really likes money a lot. Uh, that's materialism. You know, we decry that Christmas has become very materialistic, very consumery, all about the gifts and the products and and uh, we think of materialism that way and it and it's and that's not good but here I think he means someone that is a materialist in a <clears throat> more philosophical way that believes that there is nothing in the universe except matter and energy that's a materialist this would be an atheist uh, or, or yeah someone who is sometimes you might call a person like that a scientific materialist in which they just think well the only thing there are no gods there are no demons there are no angels there's no afterlife you don't have a soul uh, that, that uh, you know as famous atheist uh, Richard Dawkins atheist scientist as he I think he's a microbiologist or something but he wrote uh, I have a quote from him but I don't have it in front of me but he says something like uh, in, uh, you know, the universe has no purpose, no goal, no meaning, no good, no evil. Uh, everything is only blind, meaningless chance. Uh, it's not a word-for-word -word quote, but it's really close to being word-for-word. -word. And that, I mean, blind, meaningless uh, is, is not attractive, but that's how he views the universe. So he thinks is real. But as Christians, uh, we, we don't go there. We're not materialists in that way. Hopefully, we don't, I mean, we're not, we don't believe that the world, the universe, is only constructed of atoms and energy, but rather that 
those things exist, but there's also uh, the world of the spirit, the, the world uh, that is not um, apprehended by the senses, and uh, including God. Okay? So, um, materialism. But, okay, here. Um, there are certainly people that identify as Christians. There are certainly people that believe in God and uh, confess faith in Jesus Christ who don't believe in the devil. Okay? And uh, I don't think that's orthodox Christianity. It's certainly not in line with scripture in which the devil uh, not only exists, but in the Gospels, he's one of the main, he's one of the main actors. I mean, he's, he's there often, especially when you compare it to the Old Testament. But, um, uh, but, but there are people, like I said, in the churches who would identify as Christians. They believe in God. They worship Jesus in some sense, but they don't believe in the devil as a personal being. You'll hear that. You'll hear people say that, that they may believe in a principle of evil, but the idea of a personal devil who, uh, with a legion, an army of demons, um, to them is, to, to, to some people, seems superstitious. When, in fact, I, I, you know, so I would disagree with that. I would disagree with that. I don't think that's true. I think that, uh, that there is a devil uh, that he, as the scripture describes, is crafty. Now, his name isn't devil. I don't know if he has a name. Probably. I mean, Gabriel, Michael, you know, in the Bible, there are archangels with what seem to be proper names. But, because um, uh, Satan is not either, right? That's a title, mean, or it's a descriptor. It means adversary or accuser. Same as devil. Satan is Hebrew. Devil, Diabolos is Greek. Uh, Lucifer, sometimes, that's not a proper name either. It just means bearer of light. Okay? And uh, so, the Bible refers to him in many ways. The Bible will call him the enemy. The Bible will call him, a Jesus calls him a liar and the father of lies. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, Jesus says. Nice turn of phrase. Uh, Jesus calls him a murderer from the beginning. Most likely a reference to Cain, right? That he... he uh, he, he captivated Cain, who killed his brother in Genesis. So, a murderer from the beginning. And, uh, and, and so there are many, he's called a dragon, he's called a serpent. Um, so, now, we don't believe, of course, hopefully, that the devil is the, the cartoon version of a uh, wily fellow with, uh, who's painted red and uh, wears red pajamas and has horns and carries a pitchfork and, uh, you know, has a, you know, devilish mustache or whatever. Um, okay, that's a caricature. Uh, we don't believe in that. And so that's what people will say. It's like, ah, I don't believe in the devil. What? Pitchfork and horns? Well, I don't believe in that either. Okay? But, uh, but, but that, that the devil is a personal force in, insofar as an, any angel is. Okay? Um, a personal force in the sense that there is an intelligence there. Okay? An intelligence there. And, uh, and, and with the devil in particular, uh, a tremendous intelligence. And the Bible calls him crafty, wily. Um, so that's, uh, what is that? That means um, not just someone who's very knowledgeable. Okay? Uh, not just someone who just knows lots of information and smart like that but someone that can uh, apply it and put, put things together in a particular way to trip you up, okay? That takes a certain intelligence. Uh, you know, it's not just a robot, okay? It takes a certain amount of intelligence to do that. So, so when we talk about the devil or we talk about demons, um, I mean, they have the gift of language, right? They can speak. So that takes some intelligence too. So when that when someone says a skeptic says, well, you know, it's just a, a force or a, um, some kind of a negative vibe in the universe, uh, that's uh, far from uh, a complete answer, uh, far from an accurate answer. Uh, okay. So um, uh, one of the things that Luther writes about the devil, and, and Luther does write about the devil uh, numerous times, but he's not unique in his time. Sometimes people will say, oh, Luther was just sort of obsessed because he does talk about the devil. And, he, and maybe he talks about it a little more than others, but, um, but I don't think he's obsessed and I don't think he's at all unusual for a Christian who lived in the 1500s. I don't think it's unusual at all. The thing is, we have more 
volume of writings from Martin Luther, Luther than almost anyone else of that period. And so we got tons of his sermons, tons of his letters. And so we hear him talk about a lot of things frequently. There's a, um, a good biography of Martin Luther by uh, Heiko Obermann called uh, God, uh, Luther, Man Between God and the Devil. Okay, so this temptation, this tension, it's a really good biography of Martin Luther. Luther said in one of his treatises, he says, the devil is the enemy of God's created order. Okay, the devil is the enemy of God's created order, which means uh, that he wants to confuse everything, right? Uh, order, rationality. Okay, I said he was intelligent, but that doesn't necessarily mean he was rash he's rational. Okay, uh, you know, maybe he's insane, okay? So, uh, but he dislikes, according to Luther's little quip here, the devil is the enemy of God's created order. Thus, he wants to disrupt everything, okay? And this has affected primarily the human, human being, but not just human beings, uh, the, the created, the, the natural world, uh, uh, earth, <laughs> the earth, uh, and all that lives within it have been in some way disrupted by the wrath, the, um, the hatred of the enemy. Okay. Now we don't know, the scripture does not say uh, why there's a devil, where he comes from. I mean, he's created by God, but he wasn't created evil. Uh, there's a fall okay, of the devil, which predates the fall of man. We don't know exactly when or where, nor do we need to, but the Bible doesn't. There are speculations, but we don't know. And we don't know why Although, you know, there's plenty of good reasons to, to assume certain things. But I like that. The devil is the enemy of God's created order. So, so that's what he, when he attacks humans, he attacks them physically at times, and he attacks them spiritually and emotionally, and he wants to mess it up. He wants to confuse you. He wants to disorder, you know, God made things in an orderly way. The devil wants there to be disorder, confusion. Um, yeah, confusion. I'm reading a novel now, and uh, I don't know if any of you have read, heard this novel. It's called The Windswept House, and it's by Malachi Martin, former Jesuit, and uh, he, uh, he, so he wrote a number of books, but one of the books he wrote, so he, 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 he was kind of an expert on demonology, so he wrote books about exorcism, but he wrote a novel about, it's actually a Vatican thriller. <laughs> it's a Vatican thriller. It's set in the Vatican, has the Pope and everything. And, uh, but the, the premise is that, um, that there are a lot of members of the Vatican, the cardinals and staff of the Vatican, not the Pope himself, who are uh, agents of the devil. They're Satanists, okay? Uh, they're masquerading, right, as Christians, but they're Satanists and they're trying to destroy the work of the church and destroy the church by redefining it, changing the gospel into something completely other. And it's really an interesting book. It's not, I mean, as a novel, it's probably boring, but I don't find it boring because there's a lot of discourse, a lot of description of what's going on without a lot of actual things happening. And, but anyway, uh, I, I bring it up because in one of their satanic rituals, and I don't, I don't know anything about, <laughs> you know, real, Satanists or devil worshippers or what they actually do. I don't know. I don't need to know. But in the novel, uh, he describes some of their satanic rituals. And one of the features of their liturgy is he, and I, I can't remember the exact word, but it, it has the word uh, din, like, um, like uh, 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 noise. Okay, so as part of the liturgy, they just start shouting and howling and speaking and, and rattling bones and things like this just to create a den, you know, where it's confusion. That's my point. It's confusing. So I don't know if they do that, but I think, you know, that kind of fits Luther's definition of what the devil does. Okay. All right, so enough. Um, uh, there are, um, uh, you know, numerous possessions in the Gospels where Jesus is performing exorcisms and he empowers his disciples to do likewise. And they are in fact marveling that the devils are subject to them. And uh, so he gives them the power. Now um, what I'm telling you is that the church continues to have the same power uh, today. And uh, because we say, we confess 
in our creed that the church is apostolic. Okay? Well, I mean, what is that? I mean, is that just a word? It, you know, apostolic, the church is apostolic, which means that it is uh, the characteristics of the apostolic ministry are ours. And of course, the apostolic ministry is that given by Jesus. And, uh, uh, you know, Ephesians 2.20, the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. So the apostle, okay, so apostolic, so that which the apostles did is still, in some sense, our ministry. To bring order where the devil sows disorder, particularly in a spiritual sense, okay? Um, now, uh, uh, to lead me into, slowly lead me into my uh, pericope passage for today, a, um, a reminder that uh, from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, and uh, this is uh, a, a passage we read last week, but it's short, I'll read it again. Um, that by them you may wage good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And um, so th uh, the good warfare is to hold, hold the faith and a good conscience. That means that that is what the devil targets. Okay? Your faith, and the way he'll do that is multi multitudinous. Uh, he, if he can make you despair, he's, he's upset your faith. Despair of God, he's upset your faith. It may be a lie, a doctrine of demons, or a false doctrine, or in some other way, you doubt the goodness of God, you think that God is your enemy and not your friend. That is to disrupt your faith. That is, in fact, what he did to Adam and Eve. What did Satan do? What did the serpent do to Adam and Eve? Okay. Yeah, you know, we often hear he taught them, or he, he convinced them to doubt the Word of God. And uh, another way to say that is that he, 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 still, he instilled in their minds a, a, a doubt that God has their best interest at mind. Right? God's holding back from you. There's something good he doesn't want you to have, but I do. Okay? So, so he's trying to make it sound as if God does not have your best interest in mind. And once you begin to think that, I'm not sure God has my best interest in mind. Maybe I can get what I need in some other place from God because maybe God doesn't have my best interest in mind. You know, if Jesus being tempted and he's, uh, he's fasting for 40 days, and uh, what does the devil first do? Uh, offers him a sandwich. Okay, make this bread and eat. Why are you fasting? I have your best interest in mind. I just want to help. Okay, how deceptive that is. I just want to help you. Um, fight the good fight, uh, the wage the good warfare, holding faith, that is trust in the true God, and a good conscience. And that's where the, the name slanderer comes in, accuser, that the devil is breaking your faith in part by accusing you of your sins, your actual sins, and imaginary ones if he can stick them to you. Um, okay, so all of that is important uh, for, uh, for some of what I want to accomplish today. All right, well, just in the interest of time, I can go, I'll bounce back and forth, but I do, let's actually read this passage and then see what else we must do. So let's turn to Acts chapter 16. Uh, Acts 16 uh, verses, starting at verse, um, let's see. Yeah, starting at verse 16. So Acts 16, starting at verse 16, and uh, probably to verse 24. Okay? So Acts 16, starting at verse 16. If you have it, <clears throat> follow along. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, not just annoyed, greatly annoyed, 
turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, so they're, they're getting paid for her to fortune tell. She's a diviner. Then they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And, um, and, and, and basically, Paul and Silas get beaten. <laughs> and, uh, so, but the exorcism part is that has already been read there. Okay. I want to make some comments and uh, 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 break this down a little bit piece by piece. So back to verse 16. A spirit of divination... Uh, yeah, spirit of divination brought her owners much gain by, uh, by fortune telling. Now, the, um, <clears throat> the word spirit of divination, okay, uh, I, I, I consulted the Greek on that. And um, it says, noima pithona, noima being spirit. Like a pneumatic drill is by air, right? And, and you know, air and spirit. Uh, noima or pneuma. P, pneuma, uh, pith, pithona. That's the Greek. Now, um, it's translated spirit of divination, but a more literal translation of pneuma, pithona, would be spirit of the python. Pithona. Python, spirit of the python, or pythonian spirit. Now, does that just mean that uh, it's the spirit of the devil. The devil being the serpent in, in Eden, the devil being a snake, the devil being crafty, the devil being the dragon of Revelation, or is it something um, that and more? Okay, well, could be more. Because uh, in, uh, in ancient Greece, and um, in, in ancient Greece, there was a place called Delphi. And uh, Delphi... Uh, was a town, and it uh, it had uh, a cave, which is sort of a was a temple, which had priestesses, and they had fame throughout the Greco-Roman world as being fortune tellers. Okay, and they were called oracles, and so that's where you hear the phrase Oracle of Delphi. Okay, if you ever sometimes you'll, you know if you ever watch like a movie that's set in ancient Rome, the Oracle of Delphi was uh, these priestesses. Um, that were for, well renowned as fortune tellers, uh, so much so that kings would consult them before waging battle. Is this an auspicious time for me to attack, uh, you know, the Peloponnesians or you know the Spartans? You know, should I? Uh, is this a? And so they would go to the Oracle of Delphi, and uh, it's historic. We're pretty convinced that this thing existed, and uh, and there's all sorts of speculations as to how. You know, maybe there was some kind of uh, fumes, underground fumes that came up in that cave that put the, uh, the priestesses into some sort of altered state of consciousness that people understood. Because they thought she was possessed. But not in a bad way. They thought she was possessed um, by the, uh, the spirit of Apollo. And in some way, uh, the spirit of Apollo is associated with the python. Okay? So, uh, this, this all kind of ties together. The, um, uh, the reason I think this might all be connected is because she is called a fortune teller, the Oracle of Delphi is a fortune teller, and she has the spirit of the python, which is what the priestesses at uh, Delphi were called. So possibly she was one of those. She had been a, priest, a Delphic uh, priest oracle, it's possible, and she's just been made into a slave. Um, whether or not she's actual from that, you're supposed to make that connection. Okay, to, so you know a bit about, about her. And you know that uh, her owners are uh, making money from, uh, from her fortune telling, which suggests that there's some level of accuracy at times. Right? It'd be hard to make much money from a fortune teller if they're never right or never even close to right. Okay? Now, there's all kinds of ways to manipulate people um, and uh, you know, make a prediction that's so obscure that almost any outcome could, could fit. In fact, the oracles of Delphi, uh, when they gave their pronouncements, they were often in the form of a riddle. Okay, well, of course. <laughs> if it's too clear, then it might not ever come true. 
but uh, but she might be doing this. She might be doing the Delphic thing. She might be telling riddles, but in some way, it's 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 successful. Now, here's a here's a very the a very interesting part. When Paul walks by and his company walk by, what does she do? She accurately identifies them and is their best uh, PR, right? The, you couldn't pay for better PR. You couldn't hire a better PR agency than this slave girl, right? Um, now, uh, w we see that in the Gospels sometimes too. Sometimes when Jesus appears in, say, a synagogue, I mean, there's the one uh, where he goes to a synagogue, he's in church, and there's a demoniac in church, that should tell you something. Okay? It's not just out in the uh, dens of iniquity where people are demon-possessed. Okay? Jesus goes to a synagogue, and in the congregation is a demon-possessed man. Uh, they probably didn't know he was demon-possessed. Um, uh, one principle we might draw from that is that uh, uh, there, you know, um, the work of the devil often goes almost unnoticed. Don't even see it until Jesus comes into the picture and then he makes things clear. He's the light, they're darkness. He chases shadows away. What do you do, you know, if you're in a decrepit house and you flip on the light, the cockroaches, you know, they disappear. You can't see them until you turn on the light and then they try to hide. But there's the bit in the synagogue, I forget which gospel, where, and, but this happens a couple of times when Jesus confronts a demon-possessed uh, man. I think there are always men in the story, except here maybe. Um, it's not unusual for the demoniac to say something like what she says, something like, uh, Lord, or, you know, or Jesus of Nazareth, I know why you're here. Uh, did you come to throw me into the abyss? And uh, so it happens in the synagogue, and it happens at the Gadarene, the Gadarene demoniac, where he sends the demons into the pigs, um, and they go drown themselves. But in both those and probably other places, the demons identify Jesus, which is fascinating because he, the demons frequently know more about Jesus than his disciples did. The demons understood Jesus' identity and mission sometimes more than his followers did at that time. Why would the devil want, wouldn't the devil want to lie about the identity of Jesus? Wouldn't you expect the devil to say, this Jesus of Nazareth is an imposter, he's a false prophet, he's a false messiah, he's just come to uh, uh, cheat you and uh, confuse you? Wouldn't you expect the devil, who is the father of lies, to uh, tell the world that Jesus is uh, anything other than what he is? But they don't. They always identify him. And uh, why? Well, I don't know for sure, because I, you know, they didn't, we don't have like a diary or something we can go back and read a demon diary. Not like screw tape letters. But here's my theory, okay? My theory as to why they do that and why she does it, uh, you know, these men, uh, I mean, look again at what she says, verse 17. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaims to you the way of salvation. Well, that seems like a pretty good um, identification. identification. Um, so why? So my theory is this, and again, I can't prove it, but uh, I'll just share it. I suspect that the demons are, are saying uh, something to this effect. They're, they're saying, uh, uh, you know, you can't fool me. I know who you are. You come here in the flesh and I can see through it. I know who you are. Even these people don't know, but I know. Okay, some kind of taunt, maybe. Uh, okay. I don't think it matters, but it is interesting and has been much commented upon as to why they do this. Uh, you know, I, I mean, if anything, the devil is oppositional and so, you know, I know who you are. Um, but here, okay, here I think it's actually something a little more. She says, servants them. Why does Paul become annoyed? Shouldn't he be, you know, putting her on the payroll? You know, I mean, she's doing a good deed, it seems. Uh, probably not, actually, because they're in Philippi, which means they're in Greece. Okay, they're not in Palestine like Jesus was. Jesus never really left, except for his uh, infancy, never really left 
Israel. And so when Jesus is confronted by a demon and the demon says, you are the, you know, the son of God, uh, have you come here to destroy me? Um, people knew what that meant. But in Philippi, when she said, these men are the servants of the Most High God, Most High God is a phrase used in the Old and New Testaments of the living God that we worship. But it's not only used there. The phrase Most High God was used by pagans as well to refer to, if you're a Greek, your Most High God is Jupiter. Well, that's Roman. Your Most High God in, in, in Greece would be, who's, who's the Most High? Zeus, right, thank you. Uh, Zeus, that's the Most High God. So for her to say these men are servants of the Most High God in Greece would be very, could be very misleading and that would be annoying to someone like Paul. I wouldn't want that, okay? Um, and, uh, and to proclaim to you the way of salvation is not gonna mean the same thing if she's talking about uh, Apollo or Zeus or Jupiter. Uh, than if she was talking about the, the God, the, the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She probably didn't mean that. She probably didn't know who that is. I don't know. So, uh, so that's, that's a possibility as to why, uh, why she's annoying and, uh, and, and, he, and he casts the demon out. All right, so uh, it's 9.57. I will pause there. Um, and see, I, I don't know, I didn't see anyone with a microphone, so maybe that means you can't ask questions. Oh, someone does have a <laughs> Does anybody wanna uh, stump the pastor? <laughs> um, I, I have two questions. One is, uh, where did the pitchfork come from? <laughs> I, I mean, in, in, the, in the New Testament, Jesus has said at one point to have a pitchfork, Yeah, yeah. right? But where did we get the idea that, that Satan has a pitchfork? The horns I kind of get because horns are supposed to indicate like a goat. super intellect and stuff like, like a that. Goat. So Moses yeah. has horns yeah. in some yeah, of the, right, right. the wow. statues. But, yeah. but why, why did Satan get a pitchfork? Well, I, I don't know. Where did he get it? Home um, Depot or? or? Um, I, uh, I, 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 I don't know. It could be something like the... John the Baptist's statement about Jesus that he has the thresher, right? He'll throw up the hay, and maybe the devil is being associated with that. It could be that it's a means of torture, right? A torment. Um, uh, it, perhaps it has something to do with stoking flames. Um, you know, I, those are guesses. I, I, I cannot tell you why the cartoonist who create or the artist that probably predates. Uh, I mean. Probably classical art even has that. Yeah, right? yeah, it's it's pretty old, but I, I just I it's don't probably know. the poking. I'm gonna say like the poking of the damned. You know, it seems to me that Michelangelo's uh, behind the altar, that wall behind the altar, the Sistine Chapel. Well, I've never been there, but I've seen pictures. The is the Last Judgment. And it's a it's truly terrifying. All these demons and people going to hell right behind the altar. It's huge wall, but it seems to me that there's people in there getting poked and prodded and. So just useful to, to, to poke people. Yeah, okay. Uh, no, Push, I mean, uh, it's a pr I mean you, if, you want, if you want the cow to go where you want, okay, you don't just try to use the art of persuasion. Yeah. Okay? A prod will be useful. I, I'm just guessing, though. Go ahead. But the, the other question I had actually had to do with this last thing where we were talking about why would Paul get upset and why would the devil be at, uh, seemingly advertising for Paul and it seemed another uh, uh, possibility would be that somehow the devil wanted to take credit, you know, and in some ways get people to trust in the woman's prophecy rather than in the words of eternal life that Paul is preaching. Yeah, I mean, that is, uh, that, that's a very, very good option. Um, my thought on that, though, is that, that I mean, she, in this story, I mean, she is pointing to them and saying, listen to them, um, right? I mean, uh, these men, they are here to proclaim to you. You know, they are here to proclaim to you. So I don't know if here, maybe she's trying to um, take attention off of the apostles, certainly possible. It would explain the annoyance. Yeah. Um, well, and she'll be there after they leave. Yeah. So she That's can right. say, you know what? It was really all down to me. That could be, yeah. Or I am in some way affiliated with them. Yeah. 
That could be it. That I am in some way affiliated with them so that when the apostles move on, whom I'm still here, and you know me as the, the fortune teller, I am affiliated with them. That could be. I think that's, I think that's very plausible. Okay, I think, uh, did Doc, did you have a comment, question? Did you contrast being um, possessed by demons as contrast that to mental illness? Okay, great. I'm really glad you asked that. That's something in my notes that I uh, forgot to mention. Um, uh, so that is, when, when skeptics today read uh, the gospel narratives or the book of Acts and they come across this, they will almost, you know, if they even accept that there's anything historical at all, they will either identify uh, the demoniac as having some purely medical malady like epilepsy and that's why he's thrashing him around and throwing himself into the fire and all this and or uh, schizophrenia some kind of mental illness that causes people to do really strange things um, and 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 I I certainly believe that throughout history human history uh, that has been that has been the case there have been I'm sure uh, I'm I think it's a I think it is a um, um, a, a very reasonable thing for me to assert that throughout history people have identified people that have organic illnesses as being possessed by the devil. I have no doubt that that happens and that's make I mean I understand that because if you don't understand illness I mean I mean you know in the ancient world uh, including Judaism all disease was thought to be due to evil Either you sinned, or someone in your family sinned, or the devil brought this. All disease was thought to be in some way associated with it. And that's not inaccurate, but maybe not in the way, uh, I mean, you know, if there were no sin, fallen nature, there'd be no illness either. But not in the way of you commit a specific sin, therefore you get cancer. Okay. But throughout history, I've no doubt that that has happened. Um, I will, though, also say that uh, because of my faith in the uh, inspiration of the book of books of the Bible that when Jesus identifies someone as a demoniac that that is what it is because the Gospels and Acts will say both right they'll say they went around healing and casting out devils okay um, not always the same people so it seems like even there they have some distinction in their mind I don't believe that Paul was confused. I don't think that Jesus would have been confused. But I'm neither Paul nor Jesus. And so I might very, any of us might very easily misidentify strange behavior, behavior caught that's explainable, but maybe not by my limited knowledge. Okay. So I was in a, this is going to sound really off the wall, but I was in a conversation with someone. I was in a conversation with someone uh, about uh, UFOs, unidentified flying objects. And now you know you're not supposed to call them that. Now they're not unidentified flying objects. They're, what are they? they're unidentified airborne phenomena, UPAPs or something, uh, UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena. Okay. And uh, so, so, you know, all these, uh, I'm not going to, there's a long story, I won't tell you at all right here. but. Um, but my answer was, uh, maybe there's some kind of extraterrestrial life form there. Uh, I think it could be paranormal, okay? UFO phenomena could be paranormal. But I also think they could just be natural phenomena that we don't understand yet, okay? So the Titans, uh, in ancient Greece, uh, uh, people thought that thunder was caused by the Titans throwing boulders at each other. Okay? They explain natural phenomena using mythic, mythic explanations. Now that we know the natural world better, we can explain thunder differently. Maybe we'll someday be able to explain other unexplainable phenomena using naturalistic answers. Um, so, so I, I mean, so I'm kind of agreeing with you. I, I think, yes, uh, things that might be identified as demonic and supernatural, even paranormal, uh, might have organic explanations and have organic cures. Okay? But I don't think all, I, you know, I don't think by saying that that there, can, that there are no instances 
of genuine demonic activity. But my caution is to neither do is to is to avoid the two errors of C.S. Lewis that he that he pointed out. Okay, so you want to walk the road, okay, on this. Don't fall into this ditch, and don't overcorrect and fall in that ditch, which is don't be a materialist and say there's nothing except atoms and energy, but don't be a magician or to totally fascinated with. Uh, um, obsessed with devils and seeing devils behind every bent leaf. Okay, so if, so I, I mean that's why I mean I'm not going around identifying people as possessed, and even in the Catholic Church, um, uh, which which does uh, still practice exorcisms. Okay, uh, there are Catholics who are agnostic about it for sure, but the Catholic Church still does. Um, I mean, it's still officially, they have a school in Rome where priests can, bishops are supposed to send a priest there. Every diocese is supposed to have an exorcist. And uh, so there are, they, but even there, okay, even in modern Catholic practice, um, they, they, they attempt to rule everything else out. Uh, medical exams, psychological exams. In fact, if a priest does an authorized exorcism, there's supposed to be doctors and psychiatrists present. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think we need to be very, very cautious not to err either way. I don't want to see the devil beside, behind every tick, you know, but I don't want to, on the other hand, say, well, it's not possible for there to be a devilish part of the explanation. Is that okay? <laughs> well, so that's where I would come down on that. Um, yeah. Uh, I, uh, let me, uh, just a couple more words about, um, uh, I don't know, should I go into the persecution section or uh, continue with this? Um, uh, okay, so I will, I will say one more thing about this, uh, about the de uh, demonism, and uh, because before, uh, before I had, at the beginning of this, I had stated to you that passage which says, wage the good war, um, holding on to your faith and a good conscience. I told you that, and I told you that the battlefield of the devil that he identifies with you is the faith and a good conscience. Now I'm going to come back to that with another scripture. And this is 1 John 1, 9, um, which you know, because we sometimes say it in our liturgy. Uh, but if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, um, there's forgiveness and there's cleansing. There's forgiveness and there's cleansing. And they're not exactly the same thing. They go together, but they're not exactly the same thing. Okay? Uh, forgiveness is about being freed from guilt, being released from uh, your debt. It's to be forgiven. Cleansing means that you are that you, that, that you are a new person, right? That you're that you're renewed, you're refreshed. And so this is gonna lead me, this this comment is gonna lead me into my next pericope on persecution, because it's gonna come up again. This I want you to keep in mind the two maladies, the two moving away from thoughts of demons, but the two spiritual maladies that we face, guilt and shame. Okay? So remember that, guilt and shame. Uh, you know, sometimes I'll ask my classes, what's the difference between guilt and shame? They're, very, they're related, you know, but, and they're similar, but they're not exactly the same. Guilt and shame. Now, this is going to come up again next week, but I'll just finish with some of this now. Um, guilt in the New Testament, well, guilt everywhere, refers to what you've done. Things you do, you broke the law. Now you're guilty. Even if you don't feel guilty, you're guilty. It's an objective thing. You might feel an emotion of guilt, but that's not guilt. Uh, and it's not all of guilt. Guilt is an objective thing. Even if you don't feel guilty, you can be guilty. Okay? So guilt is, but, but, but guilt is about breaking the law and uh, committing a deed you're not supposed to commit or failing to commit something you are. Okay? That's guilt. And that's a serious problem that all fallen human beings have and Jesus Christ dies for the forgiveness of sins. But the shame element, I want to bring to the forefront more. 
um, shame is not about necessarily what you've done, that you broke the law. Shame is more about what you are and how you're perceived by others. Um, shame is about being um, worthless. Uh, shame is about being rejected. Okay? It's not exactly the same thing as guilt. Now, uh, you have some cultures that are more shame-oriented and some cultures that are more guilt-oriented. Now, the West, mostly influenced by Rome, okay, up to today, the West has been more guilt. Guilt, and what's the opposite of guilt? Innocence, or how do you get to innocence? Forgiveness, okay. How do you, what, what, what medicine do you apply to guilt? Forgiveness, okay. Now, in other cultures, particularly Eastern cultures or uh, cultures south of the equator and, and, uh, um, and, and ancient Near East, okay, Near Eastern cultures, they have guilt, but they also they understand shame better. They are an honor-shame culture, okay? So, uh, you bring dishonor to yourself and to me. Yes, it can be by what you've done, but it's, it's, I'm rejecting you. Okay? It's a rejection of you. Now, one reason I think this is important for us spiritually and pastorally and missionally as a church today in America is I see signs that we are moving more into a shame concept. And uh, my great example to that is uh, Facebook. <laughs> Facebook. Okay? Um, people on Facebook want to be liked. You know, they want people, they want to say things and post pictures and have people like them. Push a little button that says, like, I like that. They want to be liked. And there is this, um, it, it becomes more and more important uh, not to be uh, rejected uh, and, uh, and mocked, okay? To be made, to be shamed. We even talk about that more and more. You know, you know there's, there's all kinds of ways to shame people. Uh, we don't necessarily want them to feel guilty. Making people feel guilty is not okay, but we can shame them into, into submission. That seems to me to be coming more of, our, of American society, to shame people that we don't approve of and that person wanting to be approved. Okay? I think that's becoming more important. And that's why. Um, uh, I think both act. I think both things are going on. The gospel heals both things, and um, but I think that it is an emphasis that preaching uh, frequently omits or misses. Okay, so we want to preach the forgiveness of sins, but there's also cleansing. Okay, uh, uh, if we confess our sins, He who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us. To be cleansed means to be free of shame. Means to be, I'm not ashamed, I'm unashamed. I can come and present myself. I can be presented by the one who has cleansed me. I can be presented. Um, and so there's, a, there's just a different kind of psychology and a different kind of spiritual psychology going on. Now when I talk next week, uh, I think that, I think that, uh, that uh, binary is helpful in talking about demons, but it's also going to be helpful when I talk about um, persecution. Uh, what, is, what is honor in a Christian concept and what is shame in a Christian concept? Um, so we'll end there. Thank you for your time and attention.